you have your Bible, I would invite you to open up to John 17. It's always encouraging to, to hear these words from somebody. They say, I'll be praying for you. And those are, those are encouraging words to hear, but it's also sometimes those words can be spoken lightly, right? Any of you, anybody, hypothetically speaking, ever promise to pray for somebody and then actually forget to pray for somebody? So it is, on the one hand, encouraging to, to hear the words, I'll, I'll be praying for you. But, but I think also that the, the character of that person who, who says the words matters. Right? If somebody says those words flippantly, you don't give much uh, credence to them. But, but if you know that person to, to be a, a man or woman who, who regularly prays, right? those words would be uh, of a greater comfort to you, right? Now, you know that they, they regularly spend time in prayer, and then they're saying, hey, I'm, I'm praying for you. you. You know and you are assured that they are, will actually keep their word. I think it's, uh, it's even more encouraging in those moments when someone says, I will be praying for you, and hey, can we pray right now? Is that okay if we, if we pray together and, and do that? Uh, because then you know if they're willing to, to pray and take the time right at that moment, that they're also more than likely to be, to be praying for you uh, at other times as well. Now, those are encouraging. And I, and I would say as you, as you hear people pray, sometimes you are able to, to just tell the depth of their own communion with God. You're able to, to get a sense that they spend much time uh, in their, their closet or in, in a room alone with God. You get that sense. And when that person who has that, that deep prayer life, when that person says, I am praying for you, that's a tremendous comfort, is it not? Now, in the Bible, we are, we are told that, that Jesus prays for His people. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34 who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Uh, I, I love that, that passage. It's such a, a rich chapter in its entirety. But the Apostle Paul is saying, really, it doesn't matter who is against us. We need to reflect upon the fact that, that God the Son sits at the right hand of God the Father and He's praying for us. So it doesn't matter who or what uh, uh, is, is aligned against us. We have God the Son praying on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says this, Therefore He, speaking of Christ, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. And that is what Christ is doing right now. He is sitting next to God the Father, praying for His people. And it's one thing to, to understand that in an abstract sense. Right? It's kind of like someone says, well, I'll be, I'll be praying for you. But what does it sound like when someone prays for you? What types of things are they praying for? 
as they pray for you. And when we come to John 17, this chapter gives life and and depth to these other passages of Scripture, which we are just told that Christ is praying for his people, that he is interceding for us. Well, John 17, we we get a glimpse of what that really looks like. We get a a glimpse of uh, what Christ is doing for us right now. John 17 is the the longest intercessory prayer of Jesus recorded in the Bible. The longest prayer of his that's recorded in the Bible. And when we see him pray in this chapter, we we get to to see his heart for God the Father. We get to see his heart for the, the 11 disciples that he had poured his life into for three years during his earthly ministry. And we see him praying also for us. Indeed, this, this entire chapter can be kind of broken down into the three sections. Uh, the first section, which we studied last week, is found in verses 1 through 5, where we, we saw that Jesus prayed for himself as his own preparation before he goes to the cross. This is just minutes, maybe an hour, before he is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to be uh, taken away to an uh, an unjust trial where he's going to be condemned unjustly and go through a tremendous amount of suffering. Then he's going to, to go to the cross and endure the wrath of God on our behalf. And then he's going to, to yield up his life as a ransom for many. This is all just, just moments away and he's taking the time to pray. In those first five verses, he prays for himself. Then in verses 6 through 19, he prays for the 11 disciples. And it's 11 because Judas Iscariot is uh, at this very time uh, plotting to betray Jesus. He's walking probably with uh, the Roman guards and the, uh, the temple guards, uh, the officers of the, the Jewish leadership, walking to the Garden of Gethsemane where they're planning on arresting Jesus. So Jesus spends 14 verses praying for the 11 disciples and then he closes out the prayer in verses 20 through 26 by praying for the church and those who would believe through the word of the 11. Last week we, we studied verses 1 through 5 and uh, we're, we're going to begin to, to walk through uh, this next section in verses 6 through 19 as Jesus prays for, for the 11 disciples. And one thing from, from last week, well, we saw that Jesus was, was always praying in accordance with God's will. And he prayed for, for three uh, things according to the, the plans and purposes of, of God. We saw that he prayed for, for God the Father to be glorified. And he, he prayed for uh, the elect. He prayed for the saints to receive eternal life. And then he, he prayed that he could uh, be restored back into the full glory with God the Father. Uh, with that glory that he had with God the Father before the world began. And all three of those prayers uh, were according to the the purpose and the plans of of God. And all three of those prayers are going to be accomplished or set in motion as Jesus goes to the cross. The Father will be glorified uh, when the the Son is exalted and lifted up in his sacrificial death. The saints will receive eternal life even as we just sang. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And Jesus uh, will be resurrected on the third day. And then 40 days later, he will ascend into heaven to be with God the Father. And he will sit down at the right hand 
But here in verses 6 through 19, he's going to be praying for the disciples. And he's going to make some specific requests that we'll look at in in the coming weeks. In verses uh, 11 through 19, he's going to pray specifically for for two things. Number one is going to be the the disciples' preservation. And say, God, keep them. Uh, Keep them from the evil one. Keep them in the world. Don't take them out of this world. Uh, But preserve them here. He's going to pray for preservation and he's going to pray for sanctification. Probably familiar with verse 17. To sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Those are going to be the the, the two specific uh, and large requests of of Christ for uh, the 11 disciples. But before he gets into the specifics, what we're going to look at in verses 6 through 10 uh, this morning, Jesus is going to give a little bit of a, a ministry update. His, his work on the earth is nearly completed, and he's going to, uh, to be in his conversation, in his speaking to God in prayer. He's going to affirm that he has acted in accordance with God's will. And he's going to describe how he has poured into the, these disciples uh, and how they have responded. If you look with me this morning, just at, at verses 6 through 10, here in John 17. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. And they were yours, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. And now they have come to know that everything that you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. Pause and pray. Father, we we come to your written word this morning and I feel like we are standing on holy ground. We come and we get to to see and to hear the words of your son as he prays to you for the men that he has discipled and instructed, walked with for three years here on the earth. We we hear his his heart, his love for them, and we hear his love for you. Father, we ask that you would lead us and guide us uh, as we examine your written word. Lord, may your written word bear fruit in our lives. May it capture our attention and our affections and draw us closer to you. Use this time for your glory, we pray. In the name of your Son, the Word made flesh. May He lead us and guide us now. Amen. Now, in these verses, Jesus is, is going to, to be describing what He did with the disciples during His three years here on the earth. He's going to, to describe what He has done with them, and He's going to describe how the disciples responded to their time with Him. 
And uh, as he's describing his own relationship with the disciples, he's going to, to bring in and weave in his, his own relationship with God the Father. So we're going to see uh, Christ's relationship with his disciples. We're going to see Christ's relationship with God the Father. And then we're going to see how the disciples responded uh, to uh, the, the, their relation, in their relationship with Christ in light of uh, these other Trinitarian truths and this Trinitarian relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And as, as we study these verses today, we're, we're going to, to see not only how Christ related to those 11 disciples, but that's going to, to set and establish a, a paradigm and a pattern for how Christ interacts with all of his disciples. What does Christ do in his ministry uh, to us and for us? Now, we're also likewise going to see a, a pattern, and we're going to see what took place, uh, how the 11 disciples responded uh, to the ministry of Christ. So we're going to see a pattern of Christ's ministry, and we're going to see a pattern of the proper responses of a disciple to the ministry of Christ. And again, all along the way, uh, there's going to be truths about the Trinity woven in. So what is Christ doing now, and what should happen in our lives as a result? In these verses 6 through 10, Jesus is going to, to give really three reports Three, three reports about what he has done during his time on the earth. And each of those reports has three components. Jesus is going to say, I've done this. Uh, and, and what he has done is connected to his relationship with God the Father. That's the second component. And then the third component of each of those reports is how the disciples have responded. So the, the first report that we see in verse 6 of chapter 17. We can put it this way of how uh, what Jesus has done and how the disciples responded. That Jesus manifested God and the disciples obeyed him. Verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name. And when Jesus says that, the idea of, of manifest is that he has disclosed, he has revealed, he has made known the name of God. Uh, and the name of God is inseparable from the, the character and the nature of God. All right, we saw this several weeks uh, back as we've been reading through the, the book of Exodus during our uh, public reading of Scripture. All right, in Exodus chapter 3, when, when Moses sees uh, a, a bush burning but not being consumed, and he comes and he's uh, uh, standing there you know, examining it, and, and the voice of God comes out of the, the, the bush and says, Take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. And I'm going to send you to the to your people, the Israelites. Moses says, well, who, who do I tell him is sending me? What, what's your name, God? And this is what uh, God says. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say uh, to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. And this is my name forever. And this is my memorial name from generation to generation. And that, that name, Yahweh, uh, th that is the Hebrew for I am. Uh, so when we, when we read that inscription from the, the legacy standard that I'm regularly preaching from, uh, it translates that Hebrew word, the name of God, as the name of God. Other translations, it will be in all capital letters. Uh, and uh, we, we need to make note of that no matter what uh, translation of Scripture that we are reading. 
Uh, but but the, the name of God is inseparable from his character. Uh, and when Jesus came and, and lived and walked uh, and ministered to and with the, these disciples uh, for three and a half years uh, during his earthly ministry, he, has, he came and he revealed what God is like to them. And uh, he revealed himself as a vivid uh, portrait of the invisible God. If you turn back to the very beginning of John, John's gospel, John chapter 1. Verse 14, uh, as the, the word was introduced in the, in the beginning of John's gospel as being with God, you can look at verse 1 in chapter 1 as well. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. So Christ is that uh, eternal Word of God who was with God and God from the very beginning. Then verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, and this is, uh, this is key. This is a big theme throughout John's gospel. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. So nobody has seen the invisible God, but we have seen and uh, can know and behold Christ. Christ is the one who explains God the Father to us. And without an understanding of who Christ is, we're not really going to understand who God the Father is. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 puts it this way, God having spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets, uh, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. So God the Son, Jesus, is the exact representation of God the Father, the invisible God. We can't see the invisible God the Father, but we can see God the Son. He is the exact representation. Now, if you kind of think with me in this way, it's really easy in our, our current time to make copies of a document, right? Now, use, uh, youth students, if you're here, college students, a little bit before your time, maybe, uh, but to, to copy a, a document uh, prior to uh, this digital age, you had to copy it by hand. Or there was, uh, in the in-between phase of ancient manuscript copying and then uh, our digital age, purely now, there's photocopiers. How many of you have ever used a photocopier, college students? You've seen one in a museum sometime, right? Uh, photocopy, right? You, you would uh, put the, the paper on the top, you would, you would scan it, and you could make a copy. And usually if you just did a copy of an original, it would turn out okay. But what would happen if you took the copy of the copy and then did a copy? Right? Each subsequent generation of copies it gets worse and worse, and you're kind of like... How do I how do I make this out? Right. You never had that struggle because everything's digital now. It's very uh, easy. Uh, but but uh, and the, the the false uh, cults of our own time basically say that that Jesus is a copy of God in that way. And that he's a copy of a copy that there's a distance between God, the father and God, the son. But but that's not what the Bible says. 
Now, Jesus is not even a, a copy. He is the exact representation of God. Uh, there is no dissimilarities at all. Uh, Jesus is truly God and truly man. And we need to understand his, his deity, his, his greatness, his glory, and that he is the one who reveals God to us. Jesus is announcing in his first report what he has, what he's come and what he has done. He has manifested the name of God. And this is also in this, this second portion, we see the, the, the Trinitarian theology that we need to understand. Now, Jesus has, has come and he has manifested the, the name, the character of God, but he's manifested uh, the name and the character of God to a specific group of people. What does he say there? I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. So this is where, where we have the, these, these Trinitarian truths. Uh, and what Jesus is, what he has done is in accordance with what is. Uh, he's rooting his own obedience and in, in the, the, his relationship with God the Father. Now, Jesus, in one sense, has revealed himself to the entire world because he came and he lived and breathed. And everybody who was there in Israel during that time could, could have seen him and, and heard him uh, preach and perform miracles. But, but he disclosed himself in a limited way to the world, to everybody, but in a, in a full and complete way to these 11 disciples. Uh, and uh, there's to these very specific group of individuals that he has revealed himself to, uh, he has revealed himself to them because they belong to God. And they were entrusted from God the Father to God the Son that they would be his, uh, his care and his concern. Uh, it was, a, in essence, a, a love gift from the Father to the Son of, hey, here's people for you to, to live and die for. That's the emphasis of the ministry of Christ. And again, the, the inner working of the Trinity on display. If you keep your finger here and turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. We see this eternal plan of God. That God the Father is the one who has made the plan. He is the architect of salvation. God the Son is the one who, who came to the earth to accomplish salvation. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. And He rose again on the third day. So Christ the Son accomplishes salvation. And then the Spirit is the one who applies salvation to those whom the Father has chosen and called and whom the Son has died for. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. See, this is the plan of the triune God. 
God the Father giving a people to God the Son, and then God the Son being able to, to send the Spirit to save those and to regenerate those same people. This is the, the Trinitarian truths that Jesus is praying and building his prayers according to and upon. But he's, you're going to say, why is Jesus emphasizing this so much? Why is he connecting the inner working of the, the Trinity to what he is about to pray on behalf of the disciples? Well, he's showing a couple of different things. Number one, he's showing that what he is praying is according to the plan and purpose of God, right? God the Son can't be uh, praying contrary to God the Father. We've got problems and situations if that is taking place. Uh, he's playing, praying in uh, direct uh, accordance with God the Father's plan. Uh, but also he's, he's showing why his prayers ought to be and indeed will be answered later on. Right? Because he's praying according to God's will, his prayer should be answered. So we have that, that, those Trinitarian truths. But then there's a, there's a third component here of this first report that Jesus gives. And it's again how the disciples responded. So Jesus, what he did, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And then here we have the response of the disciples. What did they do? So then they have kept your word. Which is amazing. Jesus commends the disciples in this way. Because in one sense, you're like, wait a second. Wasn't he just chiding them for their lack of faith? A little bit earlier in the upper room, wasn't he saying, don't be afraid? Right? Take, don't lose heart. And we know, again, just moments from now, when Jesus is arrested, what are these 11 disciples who have kept the word of Christ? What are they going to do? They're going to scatter. They're going to run for their lives. But one sense, we say, wait a second. Jesus is commending them and saying that they have kept his word. How is that possible? And this is just going to be the, the first of three commendations of these disciples. And I would say we need to keep a couple of things in mind. Number one, that the disciples are not perfect. They're going to fail in a, big, in a big way in a few minutes, but their abandonment of Christ is also in fulfillment of the scriptures. That was foretold in the Old Testament that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would scatter. We also have to understand that, that these 11 are the ones who have stuck with Jesus when most others have left and abandoned him. You turn with me back over to John chapter 6. The end of a, a long uh, discourse. If you look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Right? They're, they're grumbling against what Jesus had just taught to them. And then if you look at verse 66 in that same chapter, as a result of this, many disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. So over the course of Jesus's three and a half year ministry, started out really, really big and then it dwindled, got smaller and smaller. There were fewer and fewer people who were able to or willing to, to endure with him and follow along. And there were others besides the 11, right? We have uh, Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus and others. But there were very few at the end. And so when Jesus is saying, these are the, these are the few who have stuck with me, he's speaking in terms of the, 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 bigger, the bigger picture. These are the ones who have kept the word of Christ, the word that, uh, of God. 
that they have stuck with Jesus when everybody else has abandoned him. And, and Jesus' commendation here should be a little bit of an encouragement to us. Not that we should strive for imperfection, and not that we can excuse sin, but we also ought to see that, uh, that we are all imperfect, just like these 11 disciples. And there is a category of faithfulness that is short of perfection. And that's what we want to, to that's where we want to strive to, to live. There, there's a category in which Jesus is able to, to say of his human followers, they have kept my word. Now, when he says that, does he mean that they've kept it perfectly? No, but we've kept it faithfully. And when we do stumble, when we do sin, when we do wander, we need to be quick to, to repent and to draw near to God once more. The Christian life is a long journey, and uh, no few moments in this life completely define it. I'm sure we're all thankful for that. Amen? Amen. And we all need to press on to in obedience to God's Word because Jesus is the perfect representation of God. Because He has uh, manifested God the Father, not only to the disciples, but also to us through the written Word. Now we need to obey, we need to respond, we need to keep the words and the commandments of Christ in the same way that the disciples did. This is the the first report that Jesus gives, that he has manifested God and the disciples have obeyed him. Then there's a a second report that he gives in verses 7 and 8. Jesus proclaimed God's words and the disciples believed him. Verse 7 says, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. So, again, three parts to this report. The first part is what Jesus has done. And he, he begins first by saying, What conclusion have the disciples come to? In verse 7. Now they have come to know that everything that you have given me is from you. The disciples, after walking with Jesus for three and a half years, they understand that everything that he is is doing, everything he is manifesting and putting on display comes from God the Father. His works of power, his miracles, his teaching, his wisdom, all of these things come from God. And Jesus himself was sent by the Father to the world. But how have they come to know that? This is where we see what Jesus has done. It's at the beginning of verse 8. It says, for the words which you gave me, I have given to them. Now, we see that this is an important part of Christ's divine mission. That he was sent into the world, but he was sent with a message. He was sent with truth to, to proclaim. God uh, sent the Son with a message, and the, the Son communicated that message to his disciples. Jesus, in this sense, is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate mouthpiece of God uh, that God used to communicate to humanity. We saw that in Hebrews 1, uh, where it talked about in, in former days, God spoke uh, according to the, the prophets and in visions. But in this present time, he speaks uh, through his son. If you turn with me back over to, to Deuteronomy 18, we see uh, Moses, nearly 1,400 years prior to, to Christ, predicting that God would raise up a prophet Similar to Moses, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Moses says, Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and you shall listen to him. And this is according to all that you asked of Yahweh, your God, in Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. 
And on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. And that's because on Mount Sinai, God descended onto the top of the mountain, and then he called the people of Israel up into the, the dark and stormy clouds with thunder and lightning. And the people said, You know what, Moses, maybe we can rethink this. How about you go for us, and you come back and let us know what God says? That way we don't have to go up there, but you go up there, and then you come back and tell us. Okay? Let's, let's change the plan. Let's do that. That's where the idea of a prophet comes in. The prophet goes and, and speaks with God, and then he comes back and speaks uh, on behalf of God to the people. And what's the obligation of the people? Verse 17, And Yahweh said to me, They have spoken well, and I will raise up a prophet from among their brothers like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all and what I, or that I command him. And it will be that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So in that uh, paradigm, in that pattern of a prophet, God's going to speak to the prophet, and the prophet speaks to the people, but then what's the responsibility of the people? They need to listen, right? And we've been reading through the, the book of Jeremiah this month. If you turn over to, to that book in the Old Testament, look at Jeremiah chapter 7. <clears throat> Jeremiah 7 through 10 is a, is a very rich passage of Scripture because Jeremiah is preaching in the temple. And when Jesus cleanses the temple during his own day, guess what he's going to quote from Jeremiah chapter 7? As Jeremiah is speaking against the idolatry in the temple, Jesus is going to cleanse the temple and quote Jeremiah 7. But Jeremiah 7, look at verse 21. <clears throat> For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, listen to my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people and you will walk in the entire way which I command you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not listen or inclined their, inclined their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart and went backward and not forward since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day. I have sent you all my slaves, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them, and yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, and they did more evil than their fathers. So what was intended to be a kind of a word chain, Right? God speaks to the prophet, the prophet turns and speaks to the people, and the people respond. And when they respond to the prophet, they're also responding to God himself. <clears throat> but here in Jeremiah, what is, what's the, the divine evaluation of the word chain? It's broken down, and where has it broken down? Not between uh, God and the, the prophet. There's still, he's still sending faithful prophets, although there's also going to be unfaithful prophets and false prophets in the time of Jeremiah. But the breakdown is when Jeremiah is going to, to proclaim to the people, what do they not do? They don't listen. They harden their hearts. They reject the word. But this is why Jesus came into the world. To rescue us from our fallen condition. He went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And he now prays for us to respond to all that he has said in his word. 
He calls us to respond to that in faith. And he sends his spirit to regenerate and to give us new life so that we would be able to respond and to live in obedience to God. And, and because of Christ, the, the word chain uh, remains in cha- intact and is able to, to transform sinners. And this is the, the word chain that we see in Christ of what he's describing here. God the Father spoke to the Son. The Son spoke to the apostles. The apostles then turned around and what they heard from Jesus, they preached and they wrote down in the, in the scriptures. And, and the, the scriptures now are what feeds and, and it, uh, teaches and instructs the church as a whole. And the church is responding to that. And the disciples are the ones who, who began that. They were the first to respond. This is why this is so significant, where Jesus says, the word that I got from the Father, I'm, I've given to them, and they have received it. They have believed it. Again, so the first part we see the, the emphasis upon what Christ has done in passing along and proclaiming the utterances of God, the words of God. It's not just the, the overall message, but the implication there. It's a different word, not the logos, but uh, the, the rhema, the, the, the divine utterances. Jesus didn't change anything with the message. He proclaimed that to the apostles. And we see this, this Trinitarian theology once again, that the Father is the one who sends, the, the, the God the Son is the one who is sent. But then it, the, the, the third part of the, his report here of how the disciples respond, look at the end of verse 8. And notice that the pattern of, of verbs that Jesus mentions here. It says, and they received them. Speaking of the words which were given to God the Father and then proclaimed by God the Son. It says, they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. So what are are the verbs there? They received uh, the words of Christ. They they heard them. Uh, Then they understood them. They understood the the implication. They understood that Jesus came from God the Father and was speaking for God. And then they believed. So receiving, understanding, and then believing is the pattern that we see here. Uh, receiving or hearing leads to knowledge and understanding, which then leads to believing. And that is the pattern that must happen if there's going to be any spiritual growth. If you do not receive the word of God as the word of God, that's the end of the conversation. That's it. The Apostle Paul commends and encourages the Thessalonians uh, in in this way in chapter uh, 2, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians. He says, And for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. If someone is unwilling to hear the scriptures and they just immediately dismiss it, that's just uh, man's invention. That, that's totally corrupt. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit during the Fundamentals of the Faith class today. The, the Bible is more trustworthy than any other ancient document you could search for on earth. It has more verifiable and trustworthy evidence than any other ancient document. And yet it is constantly attacked. But if you receive the word of God as the word of God, it's going to begin to bear fruit in your life. This is where Jesus is is saying this is the beginning point, right? You receive the word of God as the word of God. uh, But then you have to to understand the word of God. If you don't understand it, you cannot then believe it. Comprehension always comes before belief. You cannot know, uh, you cannot believe what you do not know. But also, mere intellectual understanding will not bring about change and transformation. 
There's a difference between knowing the answer for the test and being convinced that the answer is true. Uh, and, and we as Christians have to do more than just know the answer for the test. We have to be convinced in our heart, in our minds, that God's word is true. Not just what it says theoretically, but am I convinced in the stillness of my own soul, this is what God is calling me to, this is what is true about reality. So this pattern of receiving the word, leading to understanding the word, and then to believing the word, this is the, the pattern that we see, and it is a spiritually dangerous thing to hear and to understand what God's word says to, uh, to understand intellectually what God's word says and then to refuse to believe it is a spiritual danger the author of Hebrews says this in chapter 4 verse 2 as he's, as he's writing to Christians who had an intellectual knowledge of Christ and the gospel and who were tempted to shrink back and turn away from Christ and turn back to Judaism and to escape persecution The author of Hebrews says this, For indeed we have good news proclaimed to us, just as they also. But the word that was heard did not profit those who were not united with faith among those who heard. So you can hear and you can know, but if there is no faith, it's not going to profit you. And in fact, it's going to be a condemnation to you. Right? The Pharisees check lots of boxes, lots of intellectual knowledge. They know the answer for the test, but are they living it out? Are they walking according to it? Are they keeping it? No, absolutely not. You're here this morning and you have been struggling in the Christian life. You're probably wrestling with this pattern and this paradigm right here. And you need to understand what Jesus is saying. God has graciously given you his words in the scriptures. Are you willing to hear them? Are you willing to to read and to hear what God says about life's problems? Are you willing to to strive to understand what God is saying about the diagnosis of what your trials and circumstances and your suffering, uh, what's causing this? What's What's the root of it? Are you willing to hear that from God's word to seek to understand it? But then are you then willing to believe it? to be convinced that God's assessment of your situation is what is true? And are you willing to accept accept his remedy? That there is hope and there is healing to be found in God's word no matter what you are facing. But it begins, first and foremost, by looking to Christ in faith. By knowing who Jesus is, the Son of God, who died for sinners, and understanding what Jesus accomplished on your behalf and what how that now requires something of you? How do you respond to what Jesus has done? That's, that's your response to the message of the gospel. Trusting in Christ is going to be the first step in spiritual growth, but that just begins, the, the, all of those same steps are going to be repeated over and over again. You're going to continue to receive God's word. You're going to continue to try to understand it, and then you're going to try to believe it and take it into your heart and soul and live accordingly. And if this, this pattern sounds familiar, which I hope it does at this point, you, you see what Jesus is teaching and what's all over the scriptures. What we see in the scriptures has informed what we do here in our growth groups and why we encourage people uh, as they're reading the scriptures to do what we call KFCA, right? To think along, the, uh, and as you read the Bible, think along this pattern of what does God want me to know? And then what does he want me to believe in faith? Knowledge should lead to faith. But then it has to go beyond that into transforming my character 
and then me living it out uh, in my actions. And you really see in the first two commendations of Christ to, about the disciples, what does he say? That there's KFCA. They've understood, they've received, understood, believed, and they've kept my word. There's KFCA right there. This is the pattern of spiritual growth. And if you're struggling, if your wheels are spinning out and you're not going anywhere, because you're probably, there's a breakdown there. You don't know the truth or you know the truth and you're rejecting it. Sometimes that happens, right? Hypothetically, you know the answer. You know what needs to happen in your life, but you hesitate to do it. But Jesus is commending the disciples because they have received God's word and they have kept it. They have believed it and acted upon it. We've seen these, these first two reports that, that Jesus gives about his own ministry of what he has done in manifesting God and proclaiming the words of God. We've seen the, the responses of the disciples. Then there's a, a third report in verses 9 and 10. Jesus prays for his people and the disciples glorified him. Verses 9 and 10, Jesus says, I ask... On their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. So, this first part of his report, we, we see what Jesus is doing right at this exact moment. He's clarifying who he is. Uh, is praying for at that moment and who he will be praying for in the in the future, in the here and now, even in our own time. Jesus is not praying for the world. Now remember, in John's gospel, the, the world usually refers to all of those who are on this earth and in rebellion against God. That's how John uses that term. Uh, The world are all of those who have rejected God, uh, who are walking in in darkness and uh, and refusing the light. Uh, But God has sent his son into the world. Uh, God so loved the world, the unbelieving world, that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God is working to reach uh, those in darkness in the world. But Jesus makes it clear that he does not pray for those who are in the world. That when he's offering up this prayer at this moment and then his future intercessory uh, prayers, he is not praying for those who are all in the world. He's praying specifically for his people. Specifically for those whom the Father has given to him. And there's that, that inter-Trinitarian reality. There's, there's been a lot of discussion this week on social media following a, a controversial commercial from the Super Bowl last week. The group of, uh, I would say, pseudo-Christians in a group called He Gets Us. And they spent $14 million. It's a, a minute-long commercial, and it's $7 million for 30 seconds during the Super Bowl. So $14 million. And they, they made this commercial uh, that covers a variety of scenes where one person is washing the feet of a, another person. And uh, over the, the, the course of the scenes, there's a lot, in essence, they're, they're trying to each, this is the way forward. This is what we must do. And there's, there's two particular uh, scenes in that commercial that, that got the attention of, of Christians. Uh, one was a Christian woman washing the feet of another woman outside 
uh, of a family planning clinic, which it says on the, the building. And then the, the last scene is of a, a Christian man washing the feet of a, of a homosexual man. And that last scene is there much longer than all of the other scenes. It kind of zeroes in and, and slight zoom in and it, and it pauses longer. And both of these scenes are held up as if Jesus would affirm these choices and, and these actions, uh, as if uh, this is what uh, is, is the way forward. This is what Jesus would, would want. And the final portion of the commercial has this message flash upon, uh, up on the screen one word at a time. And it says, Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed feet. He gets us, all of us. And, and this is where we, we have to go to the scriptures and evaluate this. Right? Is this presenting the right Jesus? And I would say, did Jesus teach hate? Well, what do we mean? I would say, we've read in John 13 through 16, Jesus did teach about hate. He didn't tell his disciples to go and hate anybody in the world. Not at all. But did he teach about hate? Yes. He, his teaching was, the world has hated him. And the world, because the world has hated him, the world is also going to hate anybody who follows him. So Jesus taught on hate. It doesn't excuse any hateful actions on the part of believers, but he absolutely taught hate. And it's not what most people think and realize. Most people, again, present Jesus as this, this person who is absolutely unjust who never deals with sin, who, who is not holy. They, they present a Jesus of their own making and hold him up. And again, I, I want to say Jesus loves sinners and he calls sinners to come to him, but he also calls sinners who come to him to change. The woman he caught in adultery, what did he say? Go and sin no more. He didn't say stay exactly as you are. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And there's a, a movement there, but the world just wants to say that Jesus is this all-affirming uh, good teacher. He gets us. A, a lengthy quote from J.C. Ryle talking about this. says, of course, like every other gospel truth, the doctrine before us needs careful statement and scriptural guarding. On the one hand, we must not narrow the love of Christ to sinners. And on the other hand, we must not make it too broad. It is true that Christ loves all sinners and invites us all to be saved. But it is also true that he specially loves the blessed company of all faithful people whom he sanctifies and glorifies. It is true that he has wrought out a redemption sufficient for all mankind and he offers it freely to all. But it is also true that his redemption is effectual only to them that believe. And just so, it is true that he is the mediator between God and man, but it is also true that he intercedes actively for none but those that come unto God by him. Hence, it is written, I pray for them. I pray not for the world. So Jesus draws a very clear line here in verse 9. He, he says who he's praying for and who he is not praying for. But here's, here's also something that we need to keep in mind. Uh, that... God is continually at work to draw people out of that domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. Colossians 1, 13, he who rescued us, speaking of God the Father, from the authority of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
Every person who is in the kingdom of God was at one point or another a citizen in the kingdom of darkness. Every single person. We need to, to grasp and comprehend that. And, and Jesus knows exactly who God the Father has given to him because that, that inner Trinitarian relationship. But you and I, we don't have that type of exact knowledge. We don't know who uh, has been given from God the Father to God the Son. So what are we called to do? We are called to, uh, to love our neighbor uh, and to be strong in two big areas. Number one, in our biblical faithfulness and in our compassion. Number two. We can't be strong in one and neglect the other. Those are not mutually exclusive. We have to hold them hand in hand. And true love of neighbor is always going to mean faithfully proclaiming the truth about Jesus as creator, savior, and judge. We proclaim him as prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus draws a line here that the world does not like, but it's there. Jesus doesn't pray for the world. He only prays for those who belong to God those who have been given to him. And the beginning of verse 10 is going to emphasize that there's a, there's a co-ownership of all things but between God the Father and God the Son. So all the people that God the Father has given uh, to the Son, he still owns, and God the Son has them as well. And so there's, there's a co-ownership of all of these people that have been entrusted uh, and are cared for by the triune God. In the context of this, in verse 10, he says, All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. The, the, really, the things are people. Your people are, are my people. And then Jesus, at the end of verse 10, speaks about how the disciples have responded to all of this. He says, They have glorified him. He says, I have been glorified in them. And so the, the disciples' reception of God's word, their faith, their obedience... Again, it's amazing that Jesus says they, their shallow obedience, even to this point in time, has glorified him. The, the disciples are, are weak and frail and inconsistent, and they've, uh, they're still going to do so much more in the future. But he says right now they have also glorified him, which also means they've glorified God the Father. And an encouragement to our own souls as we struggle daily to follow and glorify Christ. It's impossible for us to be perfect, but we strive for faithfulness. So Jesus gives these, these three reports concerning his ministry, that he has manifested God, that he has proclaimed God's words, and that he prays for the disciples. These, these are the actions of Jesus, and this is what he did at that point in time in his earthly ministry and what he continues to do even for us in the present time. He continues to be the exact representation of God the Father. He continues to uh, be a visible picture for us to behold the glory of God. He continues to proclaim God's words to us in the pages of Scripture, teaching and instructing us in the written word. He also continues to pray for us right now, as we saw in Hebrews and in Romans. Christ is interceding on our behalf, and we now know what it sounds like as he prays for us. And Jesus continues to, to act in these same ways, but we also see in the responses of the disciples how you and I should respond to this bigger and broader theology of who Jesus is and what he has done. That we ought to continue to receive and understand and believe the words of God in the scriptures. We ought to continue to look to Christ in faith as the one who reveals God to us. We also need to obey and keep all of his commands. And the aim of our life ought to be to live for the glory of God. And we're going we're gonna to stumble, we're going to sin, but may we be quick to repent and turn to Christ in faith. My hope is that we find comfort and peace 
in the fact that Christ has been praying for us, that he is praying for us now and will continue to pray for us in the future. I want to read one more encouraging quote from J.C. Ryle and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. J.C. Ryle says this, The special intercession of the Lord Jesus is one grand secret of the believer's safety. That he is daily watched and thought for and provided for with unfailing care by one whose eye never slumbers and never sleeps. Jesus is able to save them to the uttermost who come unto him by unto God by him, because he ever lives to make intercession for them. They never perish because he never ceases to pray for them, and his prayer must prevail. They stand and persevere to the end, not because of their own strength and goodness, but because Jesus intercedes for them. When Judas fell never to rise again, while Peter fell but repented and was restored, uh, the reason of the difference lay under those words of Christ to Peter. I have prayed for you that you would fail not. In Luke twenty-two thirty-two, The true servant of Christ ought to lean back his soul on the truth before us and take comfort in it. It is one of the peculiar privileges and treasures of a believer and ought to be well known. However much it may be rested and abused by false professors and hypocrites, it is one which those who really feel in themselves the working of the Spirit should hold firmly and never let go. Well, says the judicious Puritan Richard Hooker, no man's condition is so safe as ours. Prayer of Christ is more than sufficient, both to strengthen us, be we never so weak, and to overthrow all adversary power, be it never so strong and potent. I pray that we would lean our souls back in this truth today and this entire week, that Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our prophet, priest, and king, sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he prays for us. Amen?